Poverty was a visceral experience for John Jiroge when he grew up in Mahimahu, Kenya, a town that was once dotted with cornfields and frequented by wild animals. Especially when I was growing up, in my own family, there were days when we didn't even have salt in the house. Wow. Uh, you could barely, so if you, you could go to the river and get some water and drink it, and that was it. That's all you had. John migrated with his family from farm to farm, working in the fields by day and sleeping in makeshift feeding shacks by night. They would allow us to live in them, mm. um, which we did. They would tell us when they needed to use their little hut and we would move to another one. Mm. And so that's how we survived. But today, years later, John has multiple master's degrees, as well as a PhD in philosophy. And since 2011, John and his wife Leah have overseen the Valley Light Home, a refuge for 31 orphaned children. I'm Chris. And I'm Christy. We're two college students sharing the stories of overcomers around the globe who love God and love others. On today's episode, we'll hear John tell the story of how he rose out of poverty and became an international speaker with a doctorate. We'll also hear about how he and his wife Leah care for orphan children in Kenya. And we'll learn about something that John gets fired up about, the global body of Christ. This is about a homeless child making a home for others. This is about the church joining hands to build God's kingdom. This is Two Coins. If you're like me, you're probably wondering, how did John get from the cornfields of rural Kenya to a PhD in philosophy? Last October, Simple Charities founder Brian Grasso was able to visit Valley Light Home and ask John about his story. When a famine hit Mahimahu, John and his family moved to a nearby town where a station from Africa Inland Mission was located. That's where I, I first heard uh, the gospel, heard the gospel message about Jesus, and I became a follower of Christ. Then, when John was 13 years old, he met an American missionary couple who invited him into their home and provided him with a high school education. Eventually, he was offered a scholarship to go to medical school in the States. But God had different plans, he said. Instead of becoming a doctor, he ended up going to the Philadelphia College of Bible, which is now Cairn University, and next to the Talbot School of Theology, where he earned master's degrees in philosophy, theology, and New Testament studies. He then earned a PhD in philosophy from the University of Georgia. In 1996, John met his wife Leah, who has a PhD in education, at the Philadelphia Bible College, and together they stayed in the U.S. for over two decades. Then, in August of 2016, John and Leah felt called by God to move back to Kenya to serve him there. I found a video of John and Leah on the website of Just One Africa, which partners with Valley Light Home. John wears khakis and a gray collared shirt. He has a penetrating gaze and he mostly keeps his hands folded in front of him, raising them at times to emphasize a point. Leia sits next to him, wearing a sky-blue shirt and large earrings. In the background, you can hear birds chirping and the occasional growl of a motorcycle engine. The idea for the Valley Light Home didn't actually originate with John. Yeah, that's a separate story, because mm. Valley Light was an idea in my wife's mind ever since she was a little girl. 
The Valley Light property was originally occupied by a restaurant that belonged to Leia's father. Leia grew up middle class, but as a girl she was devastated when she saw how the other kids in Mahi Mahi lived. So she asked for a favor from her father. But when she realized what was happening here, she asked her dad if he could give her a piece of land so she could start an orphanage. So this was long before I met her, because we met in Pennsylvania. And her dad gave her a piece of land and actually turned over the title deed to her name. Leia's childhood dream to start an orphanage was put on hold as she went abroad to the U.S. to study. But when she and John returned to Kenya, they decided they wanted to finally turn this dream into reality. God provided for them through support from friends, as well as a donation from Wellspring International, a humanitarian branch of Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. In 2011, using those funds, John and Leah turned the restaurant into a home for the first six orphaned children. Valley Light partners with Just One Africa, a Christian nonprofit that cares for orphans and vulnerable children in Kenya. Just One Africa pays for Valley Light Homes' building expenses and supports John and Leah in their efforts to create a new home for the children. Under John and Leah's care, Valley Light Home has become a refuge for 31 children. When Brian Grasso and his wife Savannah visited the home last October, the place was teeming with energy. I looked up photos of the Valley Light kids on the Just One Africa website. One of them shows two girls smiling together. One of these girls has her arm draped over her friend. Another photo shows a boy grinning as he swings high into the air, the color of his shirt matching the bright yellow paint of the swing set. Many of these kids are orphaned due to the pervasive prostitution that takes place in the region. John's town of Mai Mahu has changed a lot since his childhood. Gone are the cornfields and giraffes. In their place are dozens of trucks and brothels. In the Great North Road, what some people call the HIV Highway, now snakes through this truck stop town. HIV has decimated much of the population, leaving many children orphaned. Other children are abandoned due to their parents' poverty or prostitution. That's where Valley Light Home steps in. When John and Leah registered their children's home with the Kenyan government, they decided to create this space for the most vulnerable children. When you are applying for registration, you have to specify the kind of kids that you want to care for. Mm. And we decided to take care of kids that have no one, absolutely no one to take care of them. There's even a hint that a relative might be able to do it. We don't take such kids. The Valley Light children range from infants to 18 years old. Some of the children came when they were just a day old. Some of the younger ones, uh, I, one was uh, thrown away in a town called Naivasha, not too far from here, in the bushes the day she was born with the umbilical cord still attached. Um, the previous week, another baby had been thrown out at the same place and was eaten by dogs. Uh, luckily, our little girl was found before that happened. Now, she's, uh, now she owns the place. She's, uh, <laughs> the home is run entirely by local staff, including a full-time social worker and house parents who live in the home. 
These caregivers are specifically trained to care for children who are HIV positive, administering their medication, providing nutrition, and caring for their individual needs. But John and Leah have learned to take a holistic approach in raising the kids, tending not only to their physical needs, but also to their spiritual and psychological ones. Their goal is to nurture the children with the love of God. When we started the home, we thought all we had to do was give the kids food, clothes, and a uh, place to sleep, send them to school and make sure they, they have health care. Mm. They have, when they're sick, they can be attended to. That's all we thought we needed. But it's much bigger than that. The psychological mm. wounds that they, many of them live with are deep. One girl came to Valley Light when she was nine. For the first two years, she would rarely speak to anyone, and she struggled in her classes. But as the girl worked with counselors in the home, she gradually opened up. And she told us that um, her, her mother had died in her arms when she was five years old. And all she could remember was trying to wake her mom up, and the mom never woke up. The next thing she saw was her mom being lowered into a grave and covered up. And wow. nobody bothered to explain anything to her. After receiving counseling and loving care from John and Leah, this girl began to change. But through the healing process, she actually has blossomed into one of the, the most lovely young ladies that you will meet. And she was almost shot wow. to the top of her class. She became a different person through the help that she has been receiving. John and Leah are working to address a cycle of poverty and abandonment that permeates the country of Kenya. So many people in Kenya just have nothing. And it's not what we think of when we say nothing. I lived in the U.S. for 23 years, and it always amazed me that somebody would open a fridge that is completely packed with stuff, completely full, and then they would say, there's nothing to eat here. They grab something, go sit on the couch, and flip through 300 channels, and then they say, there's nothing to watch. <laughs> then on Sunday morning, uh, you see them, especially the ladies, uh, open a closet, or if there's a wedding or something like that, yes. you know, they open a closet that is completely packed with clothes and they say, I have nothing to wear. Um, it's amazing. Though poverty and abandonment make up a national trend, for John, this problem is also a deeply personal one. Every time I look at these people, I see myself in the kids and I see my mom in the mothers, um, wow. and it becomes very difficult to turn them away. I see myself in the kids that we are trying to raise. Hmm. Yeah, so that's why this ministry is so close to my heart. Before we hear more from John, we're going to take a step back and look at the broader problem that Valley Light Home is working to address. Let's dive into this episode's crash course on orphan children in Kenyan society. When I did my research, I found that over 3 million children are orphaned in Kenya today. That's about 700 children every single day, and that's one child every two minutes. 700 children? That is, that is crazy. When I think about 700, that's basically the half of my freshman class in my university. So when I heard the statistic of 700 children, I was curious specifically about why these children may be orphaned. I found that 47% of the children are orphaned as a result of HIV and AIDS. HIV is very, very prevalent in Kenya, which is hard to hear. 
About 5.6% of adults are living with HIV. That means that as this HIV crisis continues, the number of orphans in Kenya is likely to grow. So what are the psychological, societal, and economic challenges that go along with being an orphan? Orphanhood has been associated highly with poor health outcomes, educational attainment, and economic disadvantage. This has also been linked with the amount of loving care that an orphan is getting from adult caregivers. I know that orphans that have to live through the death of their parents can become traumatized and develop antisocial tendencies, which I can imagine that it would be really, really challenging to have to go through the death of your parents. When I think about my own experience, I receive so much love from my parents. Yeah, I agree 100%. You know, thinking about my own parents as well, I know that I wouldn't be where I am today in terms of my physical and emotional and spiritual health and just the opportunities that I've had without their loving care and attention. So in light of this massive problem, what are some things that people in Kenya have been able to do to address this problem? Are there homes that these children can go to? So there are different types of homes that children can live in. There are homes that are solely for orphan children, so children that are missing one or two parents. There are homes that also are open to vulnerable children, so children that aren't living in a situation with enough money to support their well-being and their upbringing. So when we're talking about the Valley Light home, that's a home for specifically orphan children. As we're talking about orphanages, I think about orphanages versus home-based care. I know in the U.S., I generally think of orphan children going into home-based care rather than orphanages. Kenya has been moving in this direction as well. Interesting. So it seems like there's this tension between the family-based care and then the more institutional-based care. Has there been any research on which form of care is more effective? Yeah, there was actually a study through the Duke Global Health Institute. Catherine Wetton, the director of the study, designed a 10-year study called the Positive Outcomes for Orphans. This was the longest longitudinal study on orphans ever done. What they found was that children in institutional care often benefited just as much or more than children in community. So in her study, she got away from criticizing institutions. And she has a quote that I found. It says, let's get beyond labeling an institution as good or bad. What is the quality of care inside that building? Mm, Interesting. And were there characteristics of institutions that they found that really contributed to that kind of quality they want? Yeah, the single most important attribute for health and well-being of the child was actually the caregiver. So if there is a caregiver, it's really important that they're giving emotional attention to these children. That's such an interesting finding. And it makes a lot of just intuitive sense to me. When I think of Valley Light Home and the impact that they've had on their children, it's in large part due to John and Leah stepping in as caregivers and really showing these children the love of Christ. It's really easy to get lost in all those stats about orphan children in Kenya and forget that each orphaned or vulnerable child has her own story to tell, her own dreams, fears, and desires. Before we dive back into John's story, we're going to have a short interlude where we'll hear from Brian Grasso about a time when he visited an orphan home in Kenya and became friends with one of the children there. When I was 12 years old, I spent five days at an orphanage in Kenya called Tumaini, which means hope in Swahili. I became friends with a boy my age named Isaac, and we bonded by playing soccer out in the fields and hide and seek in the boys' dormitories. Isaac loved to joke around and had a big personality. I remember one day walking through cornfields and passing time with Isaac by telling jokes, 
sharing about my own life and hearing him tell stories of when he first got to the orphanage. The corn was taller than we were, so the path felt secluded as we walked on soft brown dirt, avoiding puddles from the recent rain. I learned that Isaac had grown up on the streets on his own without the support of parents or family members. He lived as many street boys in Kenya live, in a violent and hungry world where sniffing glue offers the promise of numbing some of the pain of day-to-day life. And then there was me, who grew up in a comfortable middle-class suburb of Atlanta. Though our experiences were a world apart, for that one week we were peers, two boys out in the field, cracking jokes as friends. A couple years after I returned to the States, I received an email from one of the leaders of Tumaini saying that Isaac had ran away from the orphanage and was again on the streets. This past October, I visited Kenya and tried to find Isaac. I was able to get in touch with someone who knew him and learned that he, now a 22-year-old man like me, is still homeless. That means that for the last 10 years, while I've continued to have amazing opportunities in life, graduating from high school and eventually college, Isaac has been fighting for survival on the streets of Nairobi. He went through his teenage years as a street boy, and now is beginning adulthood as a homeless man. Without parents, a loving household, or educational opportunities, the odds have been stacked against Isaac from well before the day that we walked those cornfields together and were, for just a moment, equals. In this second half of our episode, we're going to shift gears a bit and hear about John's apologetics work and his passion for the global church. After having lived in both Kenya and the U.S., John is deeply aware of the importance of the body of Christ. He references a passage from 1 Corinthians. Paul compared the church to a body, and the different parts of the body had playing different roles to make the whole system work. I think that metaphor extends to what, for example, the church in the U.S. or the church in Canada or in the U.K. or whatever would have that the church in Africa doesn't have, and also what the church in Africa would have that the church in the U.S. doesn't have. On the one hand, Eurocentrism can be a real problem when Western missionaries come to Africa. Being prepared to learn must come first so that you understand uh, the people you're trying to talk to. Mm. Most people don't do that. They just assume that because these people speak English with an accent when they mm-hmm. speak it, that they think with accents or they're not, um, they're not able to function properly unless you quote-unquote civilize them. The mistake comes when we think we have nothing to learn from the other culture. Yeah. And we think we have all the answers to all the problems. That's yeah. where the problem comes. Yeah. So this idea of uh, uh, that we are approaching backwards people who, whose culture mm. needs to be done away with so they can adopt a new culture and, and become new people and all that, that's yeah. where the problem is. John says he made this mistake himself when he returned to Kenya after many years in the States. He had learned so much about the Bible and Christianity, and he was ready to teach these lessons to his mom. I had all these things to teach my mom, but then she started telling me about her prayer life and how she would go with the, some other women to 
a, a center where they, they fast and pray for an entire week. And as she talked and talked, I, I, I realized I probably have more to learn from her <laughs> than I have to teach her. Uh, so there are things that the church here in Africa can teach the church in the, UK, in the US and, and elsewhere. Like John, I realized how much I still had to learn from the global body of Christ when I went on a missions trip in 2018 to Magdalena, a town in Guatemala. While there, I stayed with a host family who had three daughters. I arrived expecting to serve, but I ended up receiving far more than I gave. I remember one afternoon, it had rained really hard, one of those torrential storms that would send water coursing down the hill where my host family lived. I came back to my room in the home and got the floor all muddy. But one of the girls took a mop and cleaned up the floor, and even though I offered to help, she refused and finished cleaning up the mud. It was such a simple act, but she taught me in that moment what it means to embody Christ's attitude of service, in the same way that he got on his knees and washed his disciples' feet. Throughout my stay, the girls and their parents embodied this posture of service by waking up early to cook breakfasts of tortillas, avocados, and eggs, or taking time out of their busy days to talk with me. And at the very end of my two-week stay, I was playing Connect Four with the family in the living room when the oldest girl, Mariana, came up to me. She sheepishly gave me a handmade watercolor painting of a boy looking up at a moon, along with a note painstakingly written in English. This girl's big-hearted hospitality and generosity reminded me of the widow in the Gospel of Mark who puts two coins into the temple treasury. In that simple act, the widow had given more than anyone else. I felt the same way about my host family. They taught me about hospitality, generosity, and joy even in scarcity. They showed me a love that was as vibrant as the brushes of blue, orange, and yellow in Mariana's painting. That's why John's words about the global body of Christ resonate so deeply with me. Mariana and her family taught me that we in the Western Church don't have a monopoly on truth or knowledge. But being part of the body of Christ means that learning goes both ways. The resurgence of apologetics in, um, in the U.S., Yes. That is beautiful to see because the church has come under heavy attack from all kinds of fronts. It's not it's no longer possible mm. to be effective in standing for the truth without defending it. Mm. Uh, and, and we need to be able to do that here. Uh, and the reason we must do it is because what we are doing with the orphanage and with some of these other things, we are meeting physical needs. Mm. And that is... Most of the time, that's just touching on the, the surface issue because the mechanism that is producing those problems needs to be addressed, and it can only be addressed at the worldview level. The defense of the truth is part of John's calling. Apart from his work with Valley Light, he's a speaker for Ravi Zacharias International Ministries and hosts the African version of RZIM's radio program, Let My People Think. The goal? to show people that the Christian gospel has the answers. When John talks about apologetics, his philosophy background becomes so evident. He can quote from memory people like Dostoevsky or Christian philosopher Alvin Plantinga, and he can give a 15-minute response to the problem of evil. 
we look at what is happening in our country, in our world, in our neighborhood, and we deal with the issues that are being raised there uh, in a way that the gospel becomes the solution that the people are looking ideas, for. Ideas, and you come up with this issue, on the opposite side of this issue, that we ought to, to eradicate religion, to do away with religion because it's dangerous. Now I want to begin by telling you why that's a very naive way to think, and I'm sorry to put it back. What a relief to know that we serve a God who knows us exactly as we are, and yet he says, come, you are my child, you are completely forgiven, and I'll begin a new life with you. John explains that the Christian worldview provides the best explanations for life's toughest questions. The good news that Jesus came to bring is that there are answers to the biggest questions that we ask uh, as human beings that have been asked throughout history. Who am I? Where did I come from? Why am I here? What should I be doing? Where am I going? Mm. Those, those are the most important questions that drive almost every area of study that we do, whether we consciously think about them or not. Uh, and so what I would um, ask uh, a student who hasn't really taken that message seriously is to, to um, apply what uh, Socrates said a long time ago, that the unexamined life is not worth living, mm. to realize that we are in this world for a short time mm. and we are here for a reason. Whenever John talks about intellectual truths, he always ties it in with how we live out our everyday lives. There are people who are living with a lot of hopelessness and meaninglessness in our day, anxiety, depression, suicide, all those things uh, are going up at alarming rates all across yeah. the world. Part of the reason for that is we have become very disconnected mm. from other people and mm. we have become, we are very tied to um, our phones and, and, and podcasts. And, yes. just, <laughs> and one-on-one -on -one yeah. interaction with real human beings yes. has become very difficult. That you, you find young people, even when they're in the same room, they'd rather text each other than talk to each other, which, yes. is, uh, which is very sad to see. Mm. Uh, we are not, we are social beings. Mm. We, are, we, are, we were created for a relationship and we mm. see how detrimental it is when those relationships are broken. For John, the answers to life's questions and the ultimate solution to our anxiety and isolation are found in communion with God himself, a triune God who exists as a relational being. God has always been there even before the world existed, and he's always been a being in relationships. Mm. And he calls us, he invites us into that union with him, that relationship, so that our deepest hungers and longings are satisfied. Mm. But God in his grace has made it possible for sinful human beings like us to be reconciled with the Holy God through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross on our behalf. And so that's the, that's the message that I and many, many others carry around the world. And we have yes. seen lives changed uh, through that message. So it's not, it's not true because it works. Mm. It works because it is true. This gospel that makes unity in the body of Christ possible, that ties together the church in Kenya and throughout Africa, with the church in the U.S. and Asia and across the world. The gospel transcends culture. Uh, and, and so if somebody is bent on having people live their lives from a gospel perspective, 
there's nothing more beautiful than that. It doesn't matter mm. where they come from, whether they are from the east or from the west mm. or from Africa, that doesn't matter at all. So much of what John is saying revolves around the idea of the body of Christ. It's a concept that's so important, but can also be confusing. What does it really mean to be part of Christ's body? Well, Christy, Brian, and I are going to do our best to tackle that question. Welcome to 3AM Theology. Talking to uh, Dr. Droge is always amazing. So I was able to stay in Kijabe, which is where he lives in Kenya, for a couple weeks this past October. And even just in that community, the reputation that John and Leah have is incredible. They're just like the kind of people who, if you sit around a dinner table with them and listen to stories about their lives and, and hear how they, they've chosen to live, it just changes you. But thinking of that question of, of family, um, I'm curious what, what y'all think we can learn about the global body of Christ from listening to John's story. So as Christ is in heaven now, and we live as his members on earth, and we have the Holy Spirit in us, we all make up the body of Christ because mm. we're meant to act as Christ to other people. We talk about a body having different parts. So yeah. an arm, a leg, some toes. And each of the, <laughs> I love my toes. <laughs> Why do you love your toes, Christy? <laughs> because I do ballet and I couldn't do ballet without toes. Ah. It'd be a hard time. Hey, I love my toes too. I rock climb, so toes are great. I rock sure. climb too, so toes are great. Um, but this even shows that like the, the toes, which are the most tiny part of our body that we think are kind of unimportant, are so vital in our body just as every person is vital in the body of Christ and plays a different role. So my toes are not my fingers. My fingers are not my hair. My hair is not my mouth. And mm. everything is necessary, different but necessary. So there's this idea of unity, yeah. but differentiation. Totally. You know, that might sound like a silly example, <laughs> but it, it's basically <laughs> exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, where he says, just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. And then later he says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker, perhaps our toes, are indispensable. <laughs> and so it's totally the biblical picture that we all have a role to play. Yeah. And with John and Leah and just the way that they're spending their life, you know, one of the things he said was we could not do Valley Light Home without the support of honestly donors in America and um, organizations in America that raise money and awareness about, about what they're doing. Just because I'm not there with them taking care of these kids doesn't mean I don't have a role to play. I think of in the Bible, like the people who hold up Moses's arms when, when he's praying, I don't actually have to go overseas to serve the global poor. The Lord uses sacrificial staying in addition to, to sacrificial going. Yeah. I think it's also interesting to think of the body of Christ as the family of God because that's yeah. also another term that the Bible uses. And it's so relevant for the story where we're talking about the families and the absence of family. Mm. What do you all think about that? 
Yeah, totally. I was I was gonna ask that too. Just um, the role of family and of the love of a family and how stabilizing that is. There's an author I really like who says that the blood of Christ is thicker than the blood of biology. And what she means by that is kind of the same thing Jesus meant when he said, you know, who are my mother and my sisters and my brothers? This is one of the most radical things Jesus said. He says, you know, my mother, my sister, my brothers are those who do the will of my father in heaven. And what he's actually doing there is in a way he's, he's putting the family of God, the church, almost at a, on a higher plane than our, our nuclear families, um, which kind of can rub our American cultural sensibilities the wrong way. But really what he's saying is so beautiful because uh, Mark 10, he says, truly I tell you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. And so he's saying there is that the family of God is a real family. And that you can actually receive a hundredfold of family when you enter into the kingdom of God and become a Christian. And so the love that John and Leah showed to the kids at Valley Light Home, the way they treat them like family and the way they've adopted them is no less significant or real than, than real families. Well, Brian, while you were saying that about adopting and the family of Christ being thicker than that of biology. Mm. I think specifically of the gospel and right before the crucifixion, when Jesus gives his mother to John. And so he's Mm. kind of practicing this fact that the Christian family is so strong. So the verses in John 19, 26 to 27 say that when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son and to the disciple, Here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. So it's that idea of this Christian family being so strong. When I went to Duke, there was a time when I feel like I didn't have a strong Christian community. And I don't think I was as strong in my faith as I should have been at that time or had been before. And so what I immediately thought was, I need to get involved in Christian community because I know these people are going to care for me and they're also going to encourage me in my faith. So that's when I started going to the Center for Christianity and Scholarship, which is where I study. Um, But I started going there and I met so many believers and they cared for me in a way that my non-believing friends didn't care for me or didn't understand Mm me. That's what carries me through now, um, through stress and through challenges, knowing that I have these supportive believers who love me. They love what's valuable to me and they love Christ. Mm -hmm. And that's so cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I think another way to view the family of God is that we were all adopted into this family because at one point we were all outside of this family and uh, pastor John Piper, he has this amazing sermon called adoption, the heart of the gospel. Hmm. And in that sermon, he says that the deepest and strongest foundation of adoption is located not in the act of humans adopting humans, but in God adopting humans. Hmm. He references Romans 8, 14 to 17, which talks about how, those who are led by the spirit of God are actually sons of God and that we have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Now, now we can call God our father. And I think that's one of the greatest revelations in the new Testament. When Jesus told his disciples that we can pray to our God as, as our father in heaven, uh, that is unprecedented in the history of the Bible. Yeah. 
Totally. I think one thing we can miss in our American evangelical cultures is that if God is father, that means that we have siblings. Like if you're going to, to claim and sing in, your, in worship songs that, that God is your father, a good, good father, and he is, that's true. You know, are you treating other Christians as your brothers and sisters? Mm. And and we can throw out that term like brothers and sisters and it feel cliche, but like, you know, like I ha- actually have a lot of brothers and sisters. <laughs> I have uh, two brothers, a sister, four stepbrothers and a stepsister and a half brother. Really thinking through like, how do I treat my siblings? What does it mean to be a good brother? How do I play that role well? And then if you think about that and you apply it to how you engage in your, in your church with other believers. You should be asking that same question. Like, what does it mean to be a good brother here? That's so backed up by scripture too, because I mean, first John 4.20 says that if anyone says I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. Yeah. For anyone who does wow. not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Wow. And John specifically links that to giving to the poor because he says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, it closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Wow. And I think wow. what you said is spot on because I think the biblical truths are never without implications, right? It's always about putting them into practice. And the truth of our adoption as sons and the fact that we have brothers and sisters in Christ means that there are certain implications in how we interact with those brothers and sisters. Yeah. And can you imagine that day when we're all going to be together as that family of God? Revelation talks about how there's going to be people from every tribe and every language and every tongue and worshiping God as our father. I mean, it's just such a a beautiful vision. For John, being part of the body of Christ has practical implications. Participating in a multi-ethnic, multicultural church allows people to depend on each other, he says. He's put this truth into practice by learning to rely on others for financial support for Valley Light Home, a process he describes as a deeply humbling experience. I vowed that I would never, ever ask people for money, Mm. that I would make the money myself and I'd be the Mm. one giving the money out instead of being the one asking because it was very humiliating when I was growing up. The last thing I ever wanted was to become somebody who would be raising support for anything. But then John realized that by refusing to rely on financial support, he would have to turn some children away from the home. Compassion for these children who desperately needed care gave John a change of heart. I told them, I'm going, to, I'm going back to the U.S. and I'll do everything I can, even if it's begging, to make sure you get out of this situation. John also realized that depending on other people for money gave them the opportunity to participate as the body of Christ in doing God's kingdom work. But then I realized that there are many people who would never get the chance to present the gospel or take care of orphans the way we do. Yes. And if I had all the money that I needed to, to get that work done, I would yep. deprive them of the chance to obey God in His call to them to take care of His people. Yep. And so by setting up things the way God did, uh, He has made it possible for all of us to participate mm. and every part is equally important. It's a beautiful thing to see people from across the world contribute to the Valley Light home, John says. One time, he and Leah were trying to buy a generator for the home. 
because electricity in the area is very spotty. Uh, and it's also yeah. very difficult to look for black kids in the dark. <laughs> very difficult to find. <laughs> but they were able to call supporters through Just One Africa and buy a generator using that money. Just One Africa is also helping to fund the creation of a new home for the Valley Light kids in a rural area on the outskirts of Mahi Mahu, where the children will be able to play and grow up in greater safety. This partnership with Just One Africa, and by extension with Christians around the world, reminds John that ultimately the Valley Light home isn't just his project. One of the ways in which um, my thinking changed was, was just that, that mm. the vision was much bigger than just my wife and I, it's actually God's vision for his people. If hearing about John and Valley Light Home was impactful for you, consider donating to Just One Africa. Giving to Just One Africa will enable John and Leah to continue caring for orphaned Kenyan children. An easy way to donate is through our website, simplecharity.org, which we've also linked on the podcast page. And if you loved hearing this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you rated us on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a minute, but it has a massive impact on bringing John's story to more listeners. Before we close, I want to thank the people who made this episode possible. John and Leah for sharing their story. Amy and Clay Churchill from the Just One Africa staff for introducing Brian Grasso to the Jirogues. Ravi Zacharias International Ministries for granting us access to John's apologetics clips. Brian for sharing about Isaac. And John Kang and Carmen Mew for editing. And finally, I want to thank Angela Tofik, our amazing sound engineer and illustrator. She's poured countless hours into crafting and fine-tuning this episode. Two Coins will be taking a brief mid-season hiatus. Thank you so much for joining us on this journey, from the villages of Uganda and Kenya to the crowded cities of India, with Claire, Carol and Jonita, Prince, Chitra, Vanilla and Prima, and of course, John and Leah. But that was only half the journey. We're so excited to be returning in August with the story of a woman in the Congo who found healing after a devastating incident. I'm Chris. And I'm Christy. And this is Two Coins.